0: Hey, what's going on? It's Dr. Mike T. Nelson here. Welcome back to the Flex Diet Podcast. And today is just a solo cast with yours truly, Nerdy. And I'm doing a report from the Society for Neurosports Conference that I was at um, in person here in Florida and just finished up literally just two days ago here. So I wanted to... Give you some super nerdy rundown on the latest and greatest in the neuroscience and exercise fizz, how those two fields overlap. And yeah, so sponsor, the normal sponsor is the Flex Diet Certification. If you want more information on how to increase your nutrition and recovery, everything from protein to micronutrition to fasting, keto, sleep, and more, in a complete system, especially if you're a trainer or a coach, this allows you to apply it directly to your clients. Go to flexdiet.com, F-L-E-X-D-I-E-T.com. There'll be a way to get on the wait list there. As of this recording, the next time it'll be open will be around mid-April of 2021. And if you're on the newsletter, you'll get something cool that you probably won't get otherwise. So get on the newsletter, go to flexdiet.com, F-L-E-X-D-I-E-T.com. So Neurosports 2021 just went down here in Florida. This is the first time I've actually been to a conference that was live and not virtual over Skype within almost over a year. So about a year ago this time, we were just getting back from my buddy Dr. Ben House's place in Costa Rica to find everything was shut down. We got to the Houston airport and you could literally find tumbleweeds rolling through there at like 3 p.m. on a Friday, which that's kind of the first point it hit to me. It was like, ooh, something's going on. <laughs> because in Costa Rica, we had just you know heard different news reports and different things, but uh, to have been traveling a lot for the previous three years and been through a lot of airports, I had never in my entire life seen an airport that empty, much less the international large airport at 3 p.m. on a Friday. So yeah, so this past year has been interesting, had much more time at home. Uh, previous to that, I looked to see what was the longest stretch of time I was home for the previous three years, and it was three and a half weeks, so so quite different. All that to say, it was super cool to go to a conference in person. Um, Shout out to everyone who made the conference uh, happen. They did an amazing job with it. It went really well. Uh, So big thanks to Dr. Jamie Tartar uh, for all of her work. She did a great job emceeing it. Uh, Julius Thomas did an awesome job with asking questions, and I think he did a lot of the virtual in-person rooms, which I didn't get to see because I was there uh, in person, but the virtual rooms I heard went over really well, and also my buddy Eric Bustillo for his help, all the AV help, everyone who made it possible. So big thank you uh, to them, and the little caveat with this is uh, I took almost nine pages of notes I'm not going to subject you to every little thing that I wrote down, because that would probably one take forever. Um, But I wanted to give you some of the highlights. I did a 10-minute highlight here uh, for Iron Radio recently, so you may have heard a couple of these items on there. Uh, The caveat is, whenever possible, I've tried to give credit to the researchers, but inevitably, um, because a lot of times when they're presenting, they had only a short period of time, I won't have all the explicit uh, breakdown of the exact study group and what were the stats and all that kind of stuff. So if you want that, and there'll be a way that you can probably research it online, but I'll try to at least get the main points um, across to you. And the nice part about going to these conferences and and having researchers in the field present is that some of this material hasn't even really been published yet. Uh, It may only be a poster or maybe some data that they just got uh, approved. So yeah, so that's super interesting and allows you to get uh, really cutting edge information. So if you wanna know what is on the bleeding edge in terms of research, going to actual conferences and seeing the live presentations there allows you to get information that you may not have been able to get otherwise Um, in time. Uh, So without that, one of the big overviews of the conference was the effect of aerobic exercise on uh, cognition and just having a better brain. Uh, That's something I've kind of dived into a little bit more the past four years. I've done more aerobic testing uh, based on the course that I helped design for the Kerrig Institute, uh, the Kerrig Human uh, Performance Course. Um, my buddy, Dr. Kenneth J, did a really good job with the strength and the cardiovascular portions of that, and I changed my whole entire online one-on-one model um, to use what he's recommended. You can check out his book, The Cardio Code, which is really good. Um, Dr. Joe Clark is in that program also, so he's coming up here. Uh, he did the fourth module on the neurologic integration. Um, I did the third model for the Care Human Performance Program, looking at HRV and more on nutrition. So cognitively, aerobic training, super important. Brain health-wise, potentially reduction in risk of Alzheimer's and other neurodegeneration diseases. The question then is, well, like how much exercise should you do? And it's sometimes harder to extrapolate from some of the rat data, um, but we do have human data too. Uh, The first time I really heard this talked about a lot was John Radley's book, Spark. Uh, which is a little bit older now, but if you haven't read it, I would highly recommend it. Uh, He's definitely way ahead of his time uh, when that book came out. So one of the first presenters, Dr. Wendy Suzuki, uh, was looking at uh, cognition and mood, and she found that in a low-fit group of humans, even just 10 minutes a day showed benefit. Uh, So very little amount, and this kind of makes sense that if you're a lower-fit individual, You probably don't need to do as much. Uh, They looked at also uh, two to three times per week of about a 45-minute session of moderate intensity aerobic work. After about nine weeks, this was considered kind of sort of semi-permanent. This is by looking at structural changes in the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex, so specific parts of the brain. So I thought that was interesting because when I run aerobic blocks for for athletes, uh, usually pretty much across the board, almost everybody reports that their overall energy, that their cognition, their ability to pay attention, to stay on task, um, all of those go up. And I will generally run that for eight to twelve weeks, just depending upon uh, where they're at. My um, good buddy Luke Lehman from Muscle Nerds has. Some great stuff on that. He calls it uh, least mode versus beast mode. So a lot of times if you have a very low aerobic base, uh, doing more least mode stuff can be beneficial. They did see that in some of the mechanistic research that a single session uh, showed an increase in mood and acute cognition also. So if you want some of the benefits of that, doing aerobic exercise is very good. Uh, for all the other fellow meatheads, myself included, can we get benefits from resistance training? Uh, her thought was the data right now is very mixed. Um, some of the other researchers had a similar question posed to them. And it seems like the consensus was most agreed that resistance training is probably having neurologic benefits. We you know for more development and coordination. Um, exactly what's going on, we don't really know odds are that they are different effects than aerobic training. Uh, She was saying that so far the effects are mixed with resistance training, but there really just isn't that much data. Uh, She did have a great point that if you're doing any type of exercise, this will most likely increase your quality of sleep and even sometimes your sleep ability to get to sleep. And this indirectly be a better sleep will also increase brain function. So I thought that was a great point. Um, Another talk was from uh, Dr. Joe Clark. Again, he's a faculty member at the Kerrig Institute and does a lot of really great uh, visual training. So they've been looking at, uh, for many, many years now, visual systems post-concussion. And they were able to, uh, this is uh, Cincinnati, cut concussions by 80% uh, with pre-training some visual work in a specific way. So I thought that was fascinating that you can dramatically reduce the rate of concussions. Obviously, we'd like to see, like all data, uh, replicated at another university. But even if it's 40%, right, or 10%, this is a pretty big uh, change. They've been doing that for many years. They have uh, published that work too. He does a neural baseline on all of their athletes. Uh, If you start looking at neurologic function, it's going to be a little bit different per athlete and per person. Granted, there's going to be some general and averages, but you're always going to have outliers. And odds are, if you've got athletes, they're probably going to be a little bit more outliers on the higher end of the spectrum. So they have a baseline done on all of their athletes beforehand. So if they would get a concussion, they can retest and see uh, what areas are being affected and how far they're off from baseline. Because that's the hard part about uh, taking a hit to the head It can affect many different parts of the brain. There are general areas that appear to be more susceptible just due to most likely some of the different stresses and sheer stresses. Um, The other part too is that it's not always a hit to the head. It's any time your brain is decelerating very fast. So you could take a very hard hit to your body not have the brain, quote, directly impacted at all, and you could still have um, issues because your brain is going to slam into the inside of your skull, and that's going to cause issues. Another component he talked about was eye discipline, keeping your eyes where they need to be. Uh, example he had was a study looking at uh, females, soccer players, who were heading the ball, Uh, 96% of them did that initially with their eyes closed. Uh, They then retrained them to do this with their eyes open. What they found was that their rate of concussion when they were heading the ball with their eyes closed was about four per year. When they retrained them through some specific visual and movement training to do it with their eyes open, their rate of concussion dropped to one every other year And it stayed at that rate, I believe, for what he said, almost 10 years. Uh, So super interesting stuff. I think in the future, we'll definitely see more um, eye retraining programs. Uh, The hard part is you have to do it as a whole system approach. There's been various systems out there that I think have kind of gotten close. Um, But again, you have to respect that it's an entire system And that gets more complicated by the input from your body, so proprioception, where your joints and your limbs are in space, Uh, also vestibular input, right? those three little balance guys in the inner ear. In my case, for example, I did an eval at uh, Dr. Jeremy Schmoe's office here in the Twin Cities of Minnesota when I was at home. And long story short, that for some of the eye issues that I have, when I would look to the right, on uh, just sort of fancy high-speed film of looking at my eyeball movement, my eyes for a split second would torque, so they would actually start to rotate. Uh, so the eyes rotating as a normal response if you were to tilt your head. So if you tilt your head, your eyeball will kind of stay in the middle of your head. If you move your head, your eyeball tends to stay in the middle of your head unless you've got some pathology. Uh, so that's a really, really fast reflex. And in my case, my head wasn't moving, but my brain thought that it was. So for a split second, it goes, oh, you tilted your head. Let's torque your eyeballs. Uh-oh. But I didn't tilt my head. So that air in the system was more of an air coming from the vestibular system. So for about three times a day, for four next four days, they did some other therapies and Uh, Cold laser and some coordination issues, metronome, a bunch of other stuff. Um, But one of the main things I did is I (laughs) rode in this gyro stim, this kind of fancy-looking chair, where they can spin you in different directions. And when they do this, they're giving you a massive vestibular input in addition to uh, eyeballs, seeing everything move, proprioception. And at the end of the four days when they did the high-speed film again, When my eyes would look to the right, the torquing in them actually went away, right? So if I get a better information from that vestibular system, (coughs) it says, hey, your head is not (coughs) tilting, it's where it should be, Uh, don't torque your eyeballs. So what was really cool is that they were able to rewire that. Uh, They gave me a bunch of uh, rehab drills to do that I did. And uh, now even on a video, unless I'm really tired or kind of stressed out, uh, my head position is much more straight and not as tilted. So in my case, I was born with a strabismus or a lazy eye, so my right eye sits up and out farther. And because of that, I generally see in monovision, I don't see in binocular or 3D vision per se. Um, so I think this was a super, super helpful uh, a lot of, I think, people looking at it, myself included, would have said, oh, it's just an eye quote-unquote issue. But in this case, it was an error coming in from the vestibular system. So doing more vestibular work actually had a positive transfer to better eye function. So anyway, that's my little uh, time rant there. Uh, One other thing from Dr. Joe Clark's talk, he said that post-concussion, they do exercise with their athletes as soon as possible, a lot of times within 48 hours. Again, they're going to be monitoring them. They're going to make sure that everything is good, that they're not provoking their symptoms, because you can definitely make people worse uh, by doing that. But I think we're going to see a lot of differences now where the old school advice was, oh, yeah, I got hit in the head. I'm very symptomatic. I'm just going to sit in a dark room and do nothing for many, many days to weeks. Probably not the best idea. Again, uh, find a good clinical neurologist and make sure they can eval and go from there. Um, so one other thing they do is they play with something called uh, Mardison balls. or are kind of these wacky balls. They have uh, different shapes to them. You can bounce them. They've got ones with different numbers and colors written on them for hand-eye uh, coordination. And yeah, it was a super interesting talk. Again, it was a very short talk. Um, one of the things that I've been doing at home is I got a balance board. It's guaranteed. I think it's a rev board. It's more for <clears throat> surfing, maybe snowboarding. A little balance on snowboarding is definitely different. And I've been playing around with it in between uh, sessions at home as just kind of a break to do some balance work. And then I started playing around with juggling on that too. Uh, there's a, another talk. Uh, Chris Bertram did some very interesting stuff where uh, he was on video from Canada. He works with a lot of the top uh, snowboard teams looking at flow and different ways of training. And he had the exact same board that he would uh, do that before calls or even before some virtual work. Uh, to train a little bit of that balance, which can increase potentially dopamine, which can hopefully increase your chance of hitting uh, a flow state. Uh, so something to play around with, I found that it's been <coughs> beneficial uh, for me just from a, more from a cognitive standpoint, and we'll find out in a couple of days if it's actually transferred to allowing me to hopefully be better on uh, surfboard uh, kiteboarding. So we'll uh, be in South Padre coming up, so I'll keep you updated on that. Uh, Next up was my buddy, Dr. Matt Antonucci. Uh, He runs the Centers of Plasticity in Orlando. Uh, Also, I know him, he's a faculty member at the Kerrig Institute. Uh, Really, really great stuff. So he did a a short overview looking at um, concussions and brain trauma Uh, and his experience uh, from some of the stats they have at his clinic. He said that the average person that they see is three and a half years post-concussion. So he's definitely dealing a lot more with chronic issues. In a survey they did, their average patient has seen 22 doctors before coming to them, uh, which to me is just crazy. (laughs) Um, One in every five 16-year-olds will have a concussion at some point. Uh, the average recovery is anywhere from one week to three months, and it can be even much, much longer than that. Um, obviously, you said they've got cases of people that are still symptomatic many, many years later, um, but the one to three month you said is kind of the ideal time to do some type of intervention. So, again, some more data that if you feel like you've gotten a concussion recently, you know, reaching out to a professional is going to be in your best interest. uh there is some data that some of them may resolve on their own, but again, my bias is if I get dropped out of the sky like a sack of potatoes on my head, something bad happens or car accident, whatever. My personal bias is I'm gonna go see a clinical neurologist, have them do an eval and see what I need to do. You know maybe it'll just get better with time, which would be great, but Uh, for me personally, I'm going to hedge my bets in that direction and see if there's anything I can do in the meantime. Uh, he had a really great breakdown of, uh, how your brain works in terms of the different systems involved. You basically have motor, cognition, or sensory. So motor, cognition, sensory. Motor is more movement, obviously. Cognition is the quote, thinky part and sensory is just feedback. What do you feel? Now, all of these will feed back into each other, and it gets kind of messy. Uh, From the movement people and exercise, I found that sensory and motor are highly related to each other. Uh, If I have better motor function, I tend to get better sensory function. If I want better motor function, sometimes I can go after getting better sensory function. Again, that can get a little bit messy. I don't like people seeking sensation all the time on every lift. I think that can... Predisposed people to potentially having uh, more pain. But all those systems are uh, related to each other. Uh, he had some very interesting stuff about sensory information can fix movement disorders. He had a video of a patient they saw who had a movement disorder, and whenever they would hold up uh, a blue piece of paper, whenever it would get close enough to encompass all of his visual <coughs> field, that... <clears throat> Excuse me, his uh, movement issues would clean up. So he had very what's called <clears throat> dyskinetic movement in his neck. He had a hard time holding his neck in place, <clears throat> and when they would uh, hold the blue paper in front, all of those issues cleared up. So really fascinating stuff. Uh, Doctor Justin Rhodes did. Very interesting experiment. This was a, I don't know if it was a rat or a mouse model, but they tried to only have it do a muscle contraction. Uh, So the rat was anesthetized. (coughs) They innervated the muscle, and they had it do muscle contractions. And what they found was that just by doing muscle contractions, they started to produce new neurocells, which I find is fascinating because I think in the future we'll find a lot more connection between secretion of myokines, these chemical messengers from muscle, and their effect upon the brain. Maybe it'll go the other way, I'm not so sure because of the blood brain barrier, but super, super interesting. So, the more we learn about how muscle and brain work, the more we realize that they are inextricably connected to each other. What was even more interesting is that they characterized what these new neural cells were, and it was not necessarily neurogenesis. It was actually the astrocytes, these kind of sort of quote helper cells, that were increased by muscle contraction. So you could then now hypothesize that maybe... Movement muscle contraction itself is increasing the astrocytes in part of the brain. Maybe the release of BDNF, so brain-derived neurotrophic factor from more constant muscle contractions like in aerobic exercise um, is increasing neurogenesis. So maybe both of them are working uh, just through different uh, mechanisms. So I'm not sure with something like humans and resistance training, do you see any preferential differences we touched on that a little bit? I'm not sure, but in terms of mechanistic data, super, super fascinating. Um, and they also replicated this in an in vitro model, so in a Petri dish with muscle cells. And they found that when they took the medium out, <coughs> extracted it to look for cells, that it was astrocytes that they found at that point. Next talk was also looking at benefits, Uh, was the molecular mediators of cognitive benefits of exercise uh, by Dr. Christine Wren, who is both a veterinarian and a PhD. Uh, Some interesting data that older women who exercised via aerobic exercise when they did MRIs They saw an increase in hippocampal volume. Uh, This is an area of the brain that tends to actually decrease in size with age. Uh, So again, another reason to do your aerobic training. Uh, They've theorized that this is mostly from the release of myokines. We talked about those signaling molecules released by muscle. So one of the more newly discovered ones is a compound called irisin. Um, So when I was at, I worked as associate uh, faculty for a little while at the University of St. Thomas. Uh, One of the other uh, new full-time faculty at that time, uh, he did a lot of his research actually looking at irisin. So it was always fascinating talking to him about that. Uh, It appears that this is released from skeletal muscle with exercise. Irisin has a lot of uh, benefits to metabolism itself. Um, They're also looking at markers that go up in relation to irisins, so kind of precursor molecules from a a pharma intervention. Uh, This might be beneficial for that. Uh, They did cite that this was mouse data, but mouse and human irisin mechanics appear to be similar. Uh, They do see some increases in uh, PGC1-alpha, This is kind of your master regulator of some of the benefits from aerobic exercise on metabolism. Um, Also, as we talked about, increases in BDNF. So this downstream metabolism of iris or metabolite of FNDC5, they were looking to see if it would help uh, a mouse model of Alzheimer's. And what they saw was it does appear to do that. So mice who did this had better uh, learning. They do something called a Morris water maze. So they put the mice in the water and they have to kind of remember this little maze to find a platform, they track where they go. They did see better uh, learning with that. They were using uh, peripheral irisin in this case. Uh, Irisin does appear to cross the blood brain barrier, uh, appears also to be having this benefit via anti-inflammatory effects. And what was also interesting is they did some looking at uh, activation of AMPK. You can think of AMPK and mTOR as kind of uh, on opposite ends of the seesaw. When you increase fasting, you do increase AMPK, right? This is sort of the energy sensor in your body. I'm Also, when I did the physiologic flexibility course, there's some data I have in there of In humans, doing exercise on depleted glycogen uh, increased AMPK for up to five days. So not only does fasting do it, exercise itself will do it. Exercise, uh, this was higher intensity exercise combined with low glycogen levels. Now, again, that is not the best for performance. um, But at least there's a study in humans showing that that radically upgraded uh, AMPK. Uh, They looked at a small molecule called ACAR, which is A-I-C-A-R. I Uh, I think it is probably available as a research peptide, but again, uh, caveat, do whatever you want with that with your mice at home. Uh, It does increase BDNF and increase neurogenesis from a molecular standpoint, Uh, appears to do that via muscle AMPK activation. No performance data or anything else um, on that, and again, this is in a mouse model. Um, Last part they had, this is looking at male and female and humans. They did some high-intensity exercise and did this two times a week. And they saw an increase on memory retention after a task. So again, more exercise, that high-intensity exercise and aerobic work is good for your brain. Some really great talks on sleep and the role of the nervous system in recovery and performance. Uh, My buddy Dave Barr did a really great talk on CNS and recovery. And he had a good point that recovery is just a return to your baseline. And you want to get above baseline, right? We want to see positive adaptations. And some things that we do to increase recovery may not necessarily be the best things to do long-term, right? So an example would be NSAIDs, Uh, unless you're an older individual. Ironically, uh, Dr. Trappi has shown data that older individuals, um, NSAIDs like Advil may actually be mildly anabolic for younger people in higher doses, probably not the best idea. Uh, high dose of vitamin C, even though it's considered an antioxidant, immediately after training and high doses, again, not the best idea, can impair uh, the positive adaptations that we want. Again, in the cert, I talked about cold water immersion uh, immediately post-exercise. So what parameters do you need um, for that? Uh, spoiler alert. You probably only need to be worried if you're really trying to absolutely maximize hypertrophy and you're doing relatively cold water, you know, around the 40 degrees, at least below 50 degrees for 10 to 15 minutes. But it definitely has been shown in multiple studies now to affect uh, hypertrophy. So if your goal is to maximize hypertrophy, a longer sit in the cold water tub immediately post-exercise, not the best idea. Although I would argue there is some other benefits um, to it. Uh, He also talked about sleep as the most anabolic time. Probably not. Uh, He did some markers and found that people were very catabolic overnight. However, you can circumvent some of this by having pre-sleep amounts of protein. Uh, So Dr. Mike Ormsby has done some very good research on that. Uh, Luke Van Loon's lab has done some really great research on that. I talked to him at a conference, he said, yep, we have people come in, they sleep in our lab overnight, we give them protein via a nasal cannula, right, so a tube down your nose, and then we wake them up in the morning with muscle biopsies. (laughs) So, not so fun. Uh, Dave had some really great tips about how to increase sleep, uh, using kind of your orange glasses at night to block some of the blue light. Um, I've been doing that for quite a while too, Uh, we call them our, our little mole glasses, We have a book called Mr. Mole Goes to Sleep, and I find that that's helpful. Uh, Getting sunlight exposure into your eyeballs in the morning is also super helpful, too. And yeah, so uh, Dave's got a new book uh, coming out in spring, I believe, about how to increase arm hypertrophy. Um, I've been fortunate enough to see the advanced copy, and it's really good. Um, So once that comes out, we'll try to get him on the podcast. Always enjoy his stuff. Uh, Some other great stuff, uh, briefly talking on sleep from uh, uh, Dr. and Major Allison Brager. Uh, One of the questions was, like, how much sleep should athletes get? And her thoughts were she's been studying sleep research for about 15 years, probably up to even nine hours a night, right? So some of the other researchers said average is going to be seven to nine hours a night. So if people are looking for a number related to sleep, Uh, that's going to be your number. I know there's some data showing that if you sleep really long, that that's not the best for longevity. I'm not so sure about that. I think the data is probably real. But from what I've seen, a lot of times that's uh, epi studies. And you could theorize that if you've got some disease process going on or you're not very healthy, because, again, in general population studies, you know most of the people there are not super hard exercising athletes, Um, Because of that, that you may need a lot more sleep. So if we just look at a whole population and we find, oh my gosh, look at these people sleeping nine and a half hours a night. They don't have very good longevity. That could be because they have an underlying um, disease that is requiring them to sleep that much more. Um, So my experience with clients looking at sleep, uh, Aura scores, HRV, all that stuff for many years, in general, the higher quality sleep you can get and the more sleep you can get, even better. Uh, some athletes like myself, I need on average about nine hours a night or even more. Uh, if I'm really pushing it, you know, nine and a half is better, sometimes even 10 hours in bed. Uh, some people get by with less. So again, you'll have to play around with it. Um, one of the things they said, uh, I can't remember who said it, but how do you know if you're getting enough sleep? Well, you shouldn't be sleepy during the day. <laughs> Sounds obvious, I know. Again, not using caffeine, stimulants, nicotine, things of that nature. But if you feel like you're tired during the day and you're constantly tired during the day, you will need more and higher quality sleep. Again, your sleep quality may be good. You just might need more. Um, so I thought that was seems one of those things that seems very obvious but very good. Uh, great talk on uh, Breathing from uh, Dr. Katie Dombrowski, and I just found my head kind of nodding along with a lot of it. Uh, She talked about how breathing is important because we have 20,000 breaths per day. Uh, If you can't exhale hard, that's going to be an issue. So when we're exhaling, right, that's more of a parasympathetic drive. If we measure your heart rate variability and we look at breathing, when you inhale, we're gonna see a slight sympathetic, right? slight stress, and if you exhale, we're gonna see more parasympathetic. This is in a literature called RSA, or respiratory sinus arrhythmia. It's not really an arrhythmia, it's just related to how your body is monitoring all these things that it will oscillate with breathing, um, which is why for a lot of the breathing and HRV stuff I do, I'll do a first time measurement in the morning using the athlete system. Most athletes will be seated. And with the athlete system, it has you do what's called paced breathing. So you'll breathe in and out to this little circle that goes you know, in and then out. So what we're doing there is we're trying to pace your breathing so that the effect of that natural breathing doesn't affect your underlying HRV. This way we can remove breathing as one of the things. Hopefully get a better idea on the rest of your underlying and background stressors. Um, And when I publish data, like on HRV in the past in journals and through experiments, um, I will tend to use more paced breathing for that. Um, But yeah, she had a really great talk. Uh, Check out her stuff. Uh, Another part she had too was that um, breath holding can be a sympathetic stressor because you do not have that exhalation uh, phase And she did a really good job of explaining the role of breathing. Uh, She had an athlete that came in and talked uh, who's tried, who is qualified now for the Summer Olympics in Tokyo, and just how the breathing work with her has made like a huge difference. Um, What I've noticed too is that I'll do some in person, maybe some deactivated training, I have them do some RPR, so reflexive performance reset drills get their breathing better, and when their breathing is better, their HRV gets better, their sleep gets better, everything just in general gets better. So if someone says, hey, my HRV is not very good, i.e. I'm a fairly sympathetic, stressed most of the time, yeah, all those things like nutrition and is your boss yelling at you, do you hate your job, all that stuff matters. Uh, But to me, the first thing I'm going to target as a system is going to be breathing. Can we do things to make each breath that you take more efficient and less sympathetic? If we can, to me, that's probably the big leverage point in order to change it. Uh, Dr. Wong had another follow-up talk, uh, really good, again, on uh, breathing. Broke down a lot of the pathways, changes in heart rate variability, Uh, He found that there is a large correlation between breathing and low back pain. Um, You could argue there's a lot of correlations between low back pain and uh, many other things also. Um, But, hold on. It was just room service trying to kick me out of my room. (laughs) Um, So he did a great talk about looking at uh, low back pain related uh, to breathing. which Again, lots of things are related to low back pain. Um, Great job breaking down all the different uh, components. So breathing, we've got mechanical things going on. Uh, We also have chemical things uh, going on. Shameless plug, I talk about this in the cert again, (laughs) looking at pH changes and also breathing effects. So in the course, we talk about what type of breathing should you do to maximize recovery or training effect. If you're going bonkers, doing super ventilation, Wim Hof stuff all the time, that can add to your underlying stressors. So, shameless plug for that. Uh, But yeah, he did a really good talk, uh, super interesting, and what I thought was cool is he presented a case study where uh, they did something called capnography. This is just looking at CO2 levels in breath and some mental imaging with a high-level athlete of a stressor and they got to watch how her breathing changed and how uh, CO2 levels also changed also. So uh, very interesting stuff. He had some follow-up questions about what is the best breathing method if we want to acutely increase uh, heart rate variability. Uh, There is some data, I know James Nestor has talked about this too, breathing in and out at around six breaths per minute can be uh, helpful. However, he had some case studies where if an athlete was doing super deep breaths, that that sometimes wasn't always best. And one case study, he showed that more shallow breathing for this particular athlete was better. So my hypothesis on that is that if you have someone where their mechanics are not super great, really pushing them to do deep breathing in and out uh, may not be the best thing unless you're really purposely trying to do a sympathetic uh, Wim Hof type style. Um, So just play around with it. You know, a lot of times you can tell by how you feel. So if you're really forcing deep breaths in and out at a low rate and you don't feel very good, yeah, maybe not the best. You can get fancy and play around with some live heart rate or potentially live HRV and get an idea uh, with that too. Uh, So next up uh, was that's kind of sort of day one. Again, I didn't get to um, everyone there. And again, we're just giving you a brief uh, overview of it. They will have the conference again in 2022. So I would highly recommend that you check that out. Uh, starting off day two is my good buddy, Camille. Uh, he was a virtual, so he was not able to make it there in person. I uh, was talking about applied neuroscience, the making of a corporate athlete. And what I really liked about his talk was he did an excellent job of trying to break down what are your leverage points, what are things you should focus on, and then how do you get actual measurements in order to do that? which I think is really good. And that's one of the big things that's changed my coaching practice over the years. I mean, I started off using heart rate variability daily with athletes maybe eight years ago. But what I found is that by presenting them with data on their own physiology, that increases their awareness. And then we can have a discussion about what we want to do with that. Uh, He presented some really cool data from something called an Enchanted Wave and I'll put a try to put a link in the notes here. I don't have any disclosures with them. And it's looking at EEG by a single point and getting some hopefully more accurate sleep data. So it's a relatively new company. I know he's a big fan of it. And that may be a way uh, to get more detailed sleep data. There's a poster there that presented on it also that had some very interesting data. So... If you're a nerd like me and you remember the old Zio devices back from, God, 2011 now maybe, um, where they used accelerometer and EEG, you had this headband, you had to wear around uh, your head and a single electrode in the middle. Uh, My wife told me it looked sexy, but I think she was lying to me. But anyway, so that may be something to look at if you're trying to get more ideas on sleep. Uh, Good talk from Dr. Gibson about NFL uh, concussions. And unfortunately, there's not a lot of standardized measurements for concussions. So if you get into kind of the legal realm, it gets kind of messy pretty fast. Um, So again, I think it was a good counterpoint uh, to some of the stuff that uh, Dr. Joe Clark and Dr. Matt Antonucci did. Granted, I think you're looking at two entirely different populations too. And if there is a lot of money to potentially be made, unfortunately the US is a very, uh, we like to sue each other country. I'm sure that will come up. Again, a lot more talk on uh, sleep again. Uh, sleep was a kind of an overarching uh, thing. Uh, This is from Dr. Banks, looking at uh, sleep and mood. I hope I got the presenter right there. If not, someone will correct me. Uh, Again, how much? Seven to nine hours. uh, Need more sleep. Most people probably need more sleep. And what was interesting is... Let me make sure I got the right presenter here. I'll make a note in the correction if I... Did. It might have been Dr. Jennifer Goldschmied, um, but either one of them, both of them had really great talks, and uh, one of them was saying that if you wake up one to two times a night and you're awake for around 15 minutes, congrats, you're perfectly normal, which was funny because after I heard this talk, literally the next night I, I woke up at 2 in the morning and could not get back to sleep. I finally got back to sleep after 20 minutes, and I'm like, oh, I guess this is normal. And then I woke up at 3.30, and then after a half hour, I like could not get back to sleep. So I actually got up, did some light stuff for a while, and then went back to bed, and I was okay. Uh, she had a really great point that if you feel refreshed the next day and you feel good, assuming you're not using tons of caffeine, and your sleep was relatively fractured, you're probably okay. Now, I know some people would argue with that, but from... A clinical pathology standpoint, again, you're probably going to be good," uh, she said. "If you fall asleep, you're as the second your head hits the pillow, and you never wake up and you don't remember anything, you are probably chronically sleep deprived. And I've seen that on Aura data. If someone is always reporting that their sleep onset, so the second they hit the pillow, and boom, they're out within like two minutes." That's a key for me when I'm looking at their metrics on a weekly review, that they're probably sleep-deprived. She's like, if you never wake up at all, ever, that's what we call a coma. (laughs) So, not so good. Uh, Yeah, she said a question she had about, is napping, can that improve mood? There's some good data to show that it does increase alertness. Um, so a study they did, they had a task. They had to assess a frustration um, tolerance, so how long people would spend on a task. I think this might have been uh, Dr. Matthew Collins. They came into the lab. They had two groups. One group got a 60-minute nap. Uh, the other group did not get a nap. They had to watch a little nature documentary. They got a task and then a questionnaire, And what they were looking at was how long did they spend on a task. So they purposely gave them a little puzzle that was not able to be solved. So they measured this pre and they had the two groups and they measured it post. What they found was in the napping group, they said even though most people only slept for maybe 30 to 45 minutes, they spent two times as long on this unsolvable task. So if you're really trying to... Uh, stay on point, quote, on task, and you're a little bit tired, a nap uh, might be the way to go. Um, He also talked about uh, cognitive benefits, again, with exercise and working memory, a study where they did 30 minutes of control, which was watching March of the Penguins, or 30 minutes of walking, or 30 minutes of running at 75% of heart rate max. He was then looking at uh, questionnaires, and tasks. What he found was there was no difference in the rate of learning, um, although it looked like if you looked at the graph that there was, but when they ran the stats, they didn't see anything. However, with walking and running, their long-term recall with running and walking was better. And this was actually measured 48 hours later. So super interesting data that if you're trying to maximize your ability for recall, that maybe you want to do some exercise, some running or aerobic work, or heck, even walking, before then work on doing your task. Uh, According to this study, again, done in humans, that this was way better than watching March of the Penguins. Uh, Again, more data showing aerobic stuff, beneficial, uh, but some cool implications for timing. So what I'll do if I have some continuing ed stuff that I'm working on, especially if it's harder stuff or harder studies, different things I'm trying to memorize just for my own knowledge or for a talk, I'll do my aerobic training in the morning, go for a walk, and then immediately after, I'll actually work on that task. Now, again, I wasn't familiar with his research before, but what I found was it just appeared to work better from a focus uh, standpoint. And maybe there's some very cool data related to recall ability also. Um, Again, there's some other great talks I won't spend too much time going into here. Uh, Dr. Jose Antonio was the lead uh, chair for an afternoon of talks about sports supplements, looking at everything from energy drinks, um, which is something I've published on before. You can look up the link to it also. The JISSN review of energy drinks, position stand. And then we also have the brand new, as of a couple months ago, uh, new updated position stand on caffeine. So I was the third author on that one, which I'm so happy that it's out (coughs) because that, yeah, that took about three and a half years. I won't bore you with all the, the details, but putting together these position stands is not an easy task especially on something like caffeine, where there's literally thousands of studies. And even though we've got um, a couple of main authors trying to make heads or tails out of it and get it into peer review and out, uh, a lot of time and effort. But super great for the consumer <coughs> because they're all open access. You can go there and you can look at all of the studies. Um, yeah, so some interesting uh, data there. Uh, one of them was that MACA. Uh, It was 2.1 grams. I don't know if that was once a day or three times a day. Uh, May increase uh, grip strength within 21 days. So that was interesting. And uh, Dr. Doug Kalman talked about some other new ingredients, uh, new level, looking at that it increased um, some performance there or cognitive flexibility. And I also just realized that uh, supplements for e-gamers is like a huge area. Uh, I know some supplement industry people that play in that area. But again, I guess I didn't realize how big of a market it was. I mean, years ago, I was talking to a buddy in LA about he was working with some e-gamers. And I was like, wow, that is a much bigger area than I ever imagined that it was. Uh, The last couple of talks, uh, which were good, talking about the mind and body approaches to exercise, Uh, the first guy was Michael Manium, and fascinating guy. He's definitely more on the computer science, kind of math modeling area of it, Um, but a book he recommended that I'm going to pick up called The Embodied Mind, um, talking about that attention is more of a filter, not necessarily a spotlight. So the brain is better at filtering stuff out, not necessarily more focused, uh, derived there. Uh, Talking about the mind versus the body and how they're basically just intercreated. Some cool experiments they did with looking at how your brain is able to do self-organizing. It is emergent and it is following dynamical systems. So self-organizing, he referred to like jazz musicians, how they can kind of organize together. Emergent is something called an emergent property. If you've ever seen uh, flocks of birds fly, that's considered an emergent property where they're actually all just going off of local rules <clears throat> of how close to maybe fly next to the next bird. And if you put all these together, you get a complex system or an emergent uh that happens. And then, of course, dynamical systems, right? Nothing's really, really static. Uh, Things are always moving in place. Um, So, yeah, a great talk. One of those ones I wish I need to uh, go back and uh, watch again. Uh, He was talking about flow as actually an embodied state and some of the different flow triggers. One of the big ones was deep embodiment, Uh, He gave the example of people doing slackline, how they felt like they were uh, much more present with the slackline itself, that kind of deep embodiment um, as a trigger for a flow state. And one of the other ones uh, was uh, Dr. Chris Bertram I talked about. Uh, Again, he's also looking at flow, works with the high-level athletes (coughs) in Vancouver. He had a cool term. What I like is that he said he left... The, quote, formal academic area now works in the living lab. Uh, so I thought that was <coughs> really good. Um, one thing that of his talk that was super interesting was they took uh, musicians, jazz musicians, and put them in an MRI. And when they were doing more improvisational jazz, and again, I'm not sure exactly how they did this, that they saw big changes in their default mode network, that it actually went down. And when they were doing more rehearsed type things, it completely different signatures in the brain. And I thought that was like really fascinating. Um, Our default mode network is kind of something that's always running, quote unquote, in the background. So initially they kind of found this by putting people in an MRI and said, okay, we need a control phase. So just go in the MRI. We're not going to show you any pictures. We're not trying to trigger your amygdala or anything like that. Just just hang out and do whatever. People are probably hanging out in there, daydreaming, whatever, and they see changes to this part of the brain, which turns out to be uh, the default mode network. Uh, This is also uh, some of the studies like Dr. Roger uh, Carhart-Harris has done, looking at the effects of uh, psychedelics, uh, LSD, on the brain. They've given people uh, different compounds, psychedelics, and actually MRI image their brain, and they see very big changes in this uh, default mode network. So really fascinating stuff. Um, He also had a good point of that we need to learn to self-regulate our brain um, as an output. And his tip I had mentioned too about doing some uh, vestibular sort of challenge balance activation can engage the vestibular system and that can upregulate the release of dopamine Dopamine is one of those uh, hormones, neurohormones that's needed for uh, a flow state. And dopamine is more related to drive, I guess. Um, You can look up uh, Dr. Andrew Huberman's stuff on dopamine. Uh, It's really, really good. I'm actually finishing the book called uh, Dopamine, I think the Molecule of More. I'll probably link to that in the show notes too. Um, But super fascinating. So overall, really great conference. Uh, Again, really enjoyed it. Obviously, I'm a big fan of the neuroscience and exercise and the overlap, so it was great to go to uh, a conference that had really great presenters, awesome place, and uh, again, even just the conversations you have with the presenters and with all the other attendees there uh, was good. We had a little breakout session uh, with Eric Bustio about the role of nutrition in all of this, too. It had a really great chat uh, with the group. So I uh, would check it out. Not sure when the dates are for next year yet, uh, but you can look at the link. We'll have one here, uh, Society of Neurosports. There you go. Hopefully you've gotten some good takeaways uh, from this. If you liked all the, the nerdy goodness, make sure to sign up to the daily newsletter. Go to flexdiet.com, F-L-E-X-D-I-E-T.com. Get on the wait list there and that'll put you on to the daily newsletter for much more. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon.